Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today, I am excited to bring you our guest, Dr. Denny O'Hara. This interview was made even more special by the fact that we recorded it together while sitting in Dr. Gonstead's office at the Gonstead Clinic in Mount Horrible, Wisconsin. How amazing to be having this conversation while sitting in this amazing place, remembering the man who made it all possible. If you don't know Dr. O'Hara, he's an amazing wealth of information, and I could sit and talk with him for days. He's currently a Gonstead Fellow, and he's on the GCSS Board of Directors. In addition to that, he's held nearly every position available at some point in time. In spite of all that, I think the best way that I can introduce you to him is with a story. A couple of years ago, we were having dinner before a board meeting. We noticed Dr. O'Hara was late, but as dinner went on, he never showed up. We went to the clinic to start the meeting, and as we filed into the room, we noticed he was suddenly with us. Someone asked him where he was, and he said, well, you know, some students asked me to help them with a cervical adjustment they were having trouble with, so I took them into an adjusting room at the clinic to work with them. But then some other students dropped in. Eventually, the room was full, so I just gave them an impromptu cervical seminar. The man skipped dinner to, to do an impromptu cervical seminar after a full day of teaching. That is who Dr. Danny O'Hara is. In addition to being brilliant, he's also extremely accessible and overwhelmingly kind, as I'm sure you'll soon see. So without any further ado, Dr. Denny O'Hara. Hello, Dr. O'Hara. Thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Well, I think it's very appropriate that it says we're sitting in Dr. Gonstead's office. Uh, they, if you could tell us how you got into chiropractic and how you got into Gonstead chiropractic, because uh, you have one of the best stories about that that I've heard yet. Well, I, I, I had an uncle, Pete O'Hara, who's a really great chiropractor, and he was a follower of Dr. Gonstead's. So um, he, I, it was kind of set in stone what I was going to do. Didn't have much choice. Um, but when I was an undergrad at the University of Iowa, um, he said, come on down to Davenport. He said, uh, we're having a seminar down there, and Dr. Gonstead's going to be there and, and put on a seminar. It was, it was a Gonstead Advanced Technique Seminar. And so I, I drove down there that day, and I didn't go to the seminar, of course. That was restricted to doctors. But I went to the banquet, and it was at the Ramada Inn on Brady, Brady Street in Davenport. And... Uh, it was place was packed, full room, and I watched a number of people that I didn't know, but I would know later, like uh, Larry Troxell and John Thatcher and Dale Applegate and and uh, many others that I would learn to uh, learn about them later. Uh, they all got up and talked about Dr. Gonsed and how wonderful he was and how he had changed their life, and and uh, it was it was quite a it was quite a show and talk about Mrs. Gonstead too. They had a lot of good things to say about Mrs. Gonstead also. And then Dr. Gonstead got up and talked. And I didn't know anything about what's going on at that point, but I thought he was scolding them. He he waved his finger at him and he kept saying, see here you fellas, you, too many of you are treatopractors and you're not finding that subluxation and you're adjusting it too many places and too many times. And, and he he was just kind of giving him a philosophy lesson there, and I didn't understand at the time. I thought, God, he's really chewing them out, you know. And they had talked about him, and half of them were, were, were had tears in their eyes about how grateful they were to him. And he got up and kind of lambasted them, but but it was a it was quite an experience. And then afterwards, um, 
he was sitting talking to different people and, and uh, I got a chance. My uncle took me over there and, and he introduced me and he said, this is my nephew, Denny, and he's going to be a chiropractor. He's going to chiropractic college. And, and Dr. Gantz had said to me, he said, uh, he said, you know what you have to look forward to? And I said, I, I didn't say anything. I, it shocked me that he would ask me that. And I, what came to my mind was I saw, yeah, I saw your, your Cadillac when I came into the building. <laughs> you had a limo parked out front. I thought that's something to look forward to. And, and, and I didn't say anything. And he asked me again. He said, do you know what you have to look forward to? And, and I said, no, what? And, and he took his hands and he stuck his hands right straight forward at me, right in my face, just within a few inches of my face. And I think I probably stepped back. I, I might have even dropped my jaw. It shocked me. And he was pushing his hands toward me. And his hands looked like a carpenter with bad aim. His fingers were crooked and, and distorted. And, and oh my gosh, I thought he's trying to talk me out of being a chiropractor. But later I learned how, how he was so proud of his hands because to him, Dr. Phyllis told me that, that to him, that represented all the pain and suffering that he'd taken away from, from other people. And so I didn't understand that that night, and it took me a long time to figure that out. And, and of course, later down the road, I, I learned about so many, of the, so many of the speakers that were up there that night and got a chance to learn from them. And so it was a great experience. I'm glad I got a chance to, that one night to meet him and, and then, of course, many years later learn from that whole group that were there that night. So. Yeah, that's, that's the best story. <laughs> and, uh, and I guess being Pete O'Hara's nephew, really, you really didn't have a choice but to be in Gonstead. It I, wasn't really uh, optional. <laughs> I, had no I had no choice whatsoever. And uh, in, in fact, uh, the first day I was down at Palmer, I hadn't even been down to the school yet. And uh, he told me, he says, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to go meet a guy named Larry Troxel. And he says, all you have to do is just do whatever he tells you to do. And so that was my instruction. And so I headed out Locust Street. I had an address, but I, I headed out Locust Street, and I drove and drove and drove. And I thought, I must have missed it. And I turned around, went back, looked at numbers, you know, the address numbers. I think I stopped at a gas station, asked somebody. No, they didn't know where it was either. And so I kept driving back out Locust and went further and further. I'm past cornfields. I'm past roads. I... I thought, I've had to have missed this place. Went back into town again a little ways, and finally I thought, no, I'm driving all the way to Iowa City. If I have to, I'm going to find this clinic. And that's about how far you had to drive. You went clear out on Locust Street. And then when you saw that clinic, it was fabulous. Dr. Dr. T had a really fabulous clinic there. And, and of course, I got a chance uh, to go in and meet him. And I said, I'm, I'm, Pete, I'm Denny O'Hare. I'm Pete O'Hare's nephew. And he just said, "Oh, he said we got stuff for you to do around here," and that that was the that was the beginning. I hadn't even been to a class at Palmer yet, and uh, I, I think he already had stuff lined up for me to do. So, so that was the beginning of my chiropractic education. <laughs> well, we uh, we've talked about this before, so let's start with uh, with something that I think is um, really fascinating, actually. Um, the idea that, and you can kind of tell us where, where you picked up on the idea, where you first got a hint of it and then how you tracked it down. But the idea of the nucleus, um, of the disc actually having a, a superior and inferior half and that there, potentially there's something happening there where it's not just one structure. So 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, how you found out about that, how you first got a whiff of that, and then kind of how, what you found as you tracked that down? Sure, sure. Um, it, 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 it started before MRIs because I'm that old. <laughs> I, I, I can remember when they started CAT scans. And, and of course, fancy new technology. Yeah, fancy new technology. So before that, it was just X-ray. And, and then MRIs came later. But before that, um, I, there were some books on, on dye studies. Uh, they did dye studies, discograms, uh, mm-hmm. on the intervertebral disc where they would inject dye. And there were a number of books on that, and some of them were in the Palmer Library. I was, I was in school, and some were in the Palmer Library, and it showed when they put the dye in that, that it wasn't just a single blurb or a single bulge of the nucleus back through the anus, but it, it took on a number of different configurations. And, and of course, it showed uh, dye, the dye studies of of normal discs also. And this this person who had written this book, uh, he'd been a rancher in Texas, and he said the disc laying on its side with a line down the center, he called it the, the sign of the lazy H. And what it appeared to be is it appeared the when they injected the dye, the dye would be drawn into the nucleus, and the nucleus, instead of being a one, one smooth cylinder or ball, was was more concentrated in the upper half or the lower half of the disc, with an area in the center that 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 didn't show as much fluid as the upper and lower did, and and later later fast forward quite a few years, um, MRIs started to come out, and and at first MRIs were all T1 weighted, um, now they do T2 weight. We used to request that. I'd say, hey. Uh, do them T two weighted. They, they're easier for us to see what's going on inside the disc. Now they always involve. They always put a T two weighted um, uh, computer setting to the MRI, and it's very clear on the MRIs. So many of them that you can see the normal disc has a has an increased nucleus nuclear density up in two layers, uh, one above and one below, and I believe it that from from looking at different uh, different studies of this, it appears that the the annulus, the inner annulus, is all throughout the inner part of the the disc, and the nucleus is actually embedded in that area, and all through that inner annulus, and concentrated a little bit more in two layers rather than in one si- single circular ball. And so then potentially, does this mean that the upper and lower half can move independently of each other? I, I think they, they work they work together as a component, but certainly a protrusion, uh, the, the original discograms would show a protrusion that may be almost exclusively on the upper half, and then even a rupture uh, would rupture, and then the, you could see the ruptured fluid go up the spinal canal. And there were also dye studies again, of the ruptured disc where the ruptured uh, material would actually go down the spinal canal. So it appeared that there was, uh, there was two pathways that that might take. Um, so it, 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 it showed that it wasn't as, as, as smooth and as circular as we originally had thought. And so when, when, there's, more of that, when there's more of that nucleus that's in, that goes on the upper half, I believe it makes a difference in how that feels to us motion, as far as motion palpation versus the, when the nucleus is more on the lower half. I think they, I think they palpate different, and, and because of that, I think they adjust different.
um, we may set up on on one and it goes so nice and easy and and we the next patient comes in and they've got a listing that looks very similar and doesn't adjust for the darn and it's it it's that's understanding a few of those little subtle things that may make the difference between whether that sets real easy or whether that's a difficult one to set well i'm thinking of like cervical adjustments in particular where your line of drive might feel a little bit to the superior of the center of mass whereas other times your line of your corrective line of drive might be a little inferior to the center of mass yeah it's still a lift but then it kind of that it's that finishing touch that's either a little high or a little low and that might have to do with that that nucleus I, th- I think I think so and I think we can I think if we really take a little extra time not only I think we can palpate that but I think we actually can palpate it when we're set up when we're actually going to do the adjustment um, we put a little bit of pressure through the as we put in, putting that pressure through our adjusting finger we get a, a feedback or a feel as to how that how that pushes back at us and the restriction should be there if we push at a certain angle and it and it moves through that angle, that's probably not a, a line of correction that's going to be correct. And so we change that with that setup just enough to change our line of correction. Don't even move the contact, but just change the line of correction. Uh, lift our elbow, drop our elbow, um, whatever it takes to, to feel where the restriction is. Dr. Gonsed would, on his tapes, when you, when you watch him, he'll set up on them and he'll tell the, the people watching, the, the doctors that are watching, he'll say, See now here, fellas. See here now, fellas. That's ready for setting. He gets it to a certain point, and he knows that's right there. It's ready that he can he can set that right from that spot. And I think we need to take just that little extra time to rather than set up and go, but to take that little extra time to make sure that we're we've got that ready to set, like just like that. Yeah, and for students, I um I was actually just talking with Charlie Martin about this yesterday. That a lot of times they want to know, well, I can't feel that. How do I feel that? And so then I tell them, well. Adjusting people increases your ability to palpate better. Better palpation increases your ability to adjust better. And they feed each other. And it's not something you can sit down in a weekend court. Like we had a bunch of students here this weekend. We couldn't just teach them and have them go home master palpators and adjusters. Because it has to be, it's it's that brain science that has to be developed. Um, I forget who, I guess it was uh, Dr. Anderson this weekend who was saying that Gonstead would have this giant area of his spinal cord that was all yeah, proprioceptive. Yeah, the homunculus. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the homunculus. yeah, because he was doing so much of that. But he didn't start that way, and none of us do. And so it's it's something that's not developed by school learning. It's something that's developed by practice. And until you're getting your hands on people and you're actually going through the motions over and over, once you do, the two feed each other. And so as you get better at that, you start to, like we, we differentiate between adjusting and palpating. But really, when we're adjusting, we're palpating the entire time. We, we palpate right through the adjustment. Yeah. So that that's even how we know if we got it all. <laughs> like, you're palpating through the whole thing, and the palpation never stops. And I think sometimes people don't conceptualize that, that it really is constant palpation with an adjustment thrown in on top. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that gives you something. I think if you know the target, what you're aiming for, you might start to perceive. Because sometimes when I was first learning palpation, um, I would know what I was supposed to feel. I would hallucinate myself to feeling it. But over time, I started actually feeling it. And it's, it's a weird guide, but it does kind of work. <laughs> uh, let's see. And so then there's another interesting thing. We ta- th- you talked about this at the, the last meeting of the Minds a year ago. Um, and I don't want to spoil all of it. You know what I'm talking about. So I don't want to spoil any of it. So I'll just have you tell the story, kind of how you stumbled across the thing with the nearsightedness 
and kind of how that came about and then kind of discover the neurology behind it. Yeah, that's a topic um, I did at the, at the last mom and it's uh, it's about nearsighted vision, but what it started out with is ADD kids and uh, now they're ADHD. There's different, they have a whole different alphabet now, but back again, I've been in practice quite a while and and I can remember when they were just riddling kids or and I always thought of them as 100 mile an hour kids and and they would come in with their parents and they'd bounce off the walls and you could just tell it's just a child that couldn't sit still and so you'd have have those at some point but later um, the the town I live in they opened a school that was about five blocks from me uh, called Castle Hill School and it was a, a school that the teacher uh, student ratio was one to one there was one teacher for every student and these are kids that had um, had issues like that that were actually disabilities not just a not just a difficult kid to keep in class but were actual disabilities and it started with um, I had a teacher come over and she had a lot of back troubles and she was telling how they do a restraint on some of the kids that she worked there at Castle Hill and she explained how they'd have to sit they'd sit on the floor put wrap their legs from behind the, the child they'd wrap their legs around them and then they could hold their arms and keep them from hurting someone else or hurting themselves. And they try to, to, to restrain them that way uh, the best they can in a, safe, in a safe way. They were taught that's the safest way they could do that. And, and they, of course, that bothered the teachers. I said, well, how, how long do you hold them? She says, well, about four hours. And then someone else has to come and hold them for four hours. And so I realized that's, there's, that's a real issue with those kids. I said, well, you know, they, they really need to see a chiropractor to see if we can slow that down because I'd never had, I'd never had a child that was that severe, but I'd had others that were 100 mile an hour kids and you, you correct their problem and they, they slow right down. They, they, they're a lot better in class and they get better grades. Uh, they're better sleepers. They sleep better after that. So, um, so I did wind up getting um, uh, a student from Castle Hill and the, of course, the parent came in. Uh, we took care of that patient and, and probably got about two or three more before I realized they all wore glasses. Now, all of those, uh, those kids all wore glasses. And I thought, what, what, why did they all wear glasses? You know, there's, there's got to be something that's, that's, that makes them similar. And I, I, I always say if you, if you see something that's, that shows a pattern like that, it's hardwired. It's not random. It's got to be something hardwired, and it's for us to figure out where that wiring is. So um, I started looking into the nearsighted vision and tried to match it up with some of the other things that these kids were displaying. Um, I called them 100 mile an hour kids because they were fast in everything they did. You know, if they were sitting on the exam chair and if they got up to rant to run, you couldn't catch them. They're just they they literally bounce off the walls in there and and they so i i looked at that as they've got some kind of trouble that causes too much sympathetic stimulation as these kids are just going going like crazy like that um and so looking at where i found their issues most often was on the was on the upper cervical area and most of them appeared to have their issue on the back side of the spinal cord um and changing that had changed these these children to slow them down to the point where where they would um, they would do okay for a while or do better for a while and then at some point the 
the mother would come in with the child again and say the teacher sent a pinned a note to their shirt say you got to see the chiropractor again. So so the teacher could tell the difference in how this child slowed down. Well, investigating why they would go that fast, what would take place of be going that fast, really led me to the reticular formation and the neurology of of the tone generators in the reticular formation. And we all have a different tone. Some of us are a little slower and some of us are faster and and some of these kids are hyper fast and so looking into how that affected things I, I I looked at why that would make them faster obviously because their their systems in hyperdrive and I assumed that it would affect other systems that way but I was trying to find out why they were nearsighted and looking into nearsighted I found that the that the uh, accommodation for nearsighted, when the accommodation of the lens of the eye when they're nearsighted um, comes through, is, a, is simply a parasympathetic connection. There is no sympathetic connection. And so my thought is, well, how do they, how do they go that fast in, in real time, running around the room, but yet have some, an, overproduct, an overstimulation of parasympathetic to the lens of the eye? Because the eye, the eye needs to relax in order to accommodate for near vision. Um, uh, so, or, excuse me, for far vision. So, um, looking into that, it, what it came down to is that the, the speeding up of the nervous system sped up both the parasympathetic and the sympathetic systems together. It was an increased output of neural production on both sides of the autonomic structures and and at that and what what we saw the differences were were on the systems that were one-way systems all the other systems all the other systems weren't affected these kids that are are 100 mile an hour kids like that they don't have a fast heart well a lot of them don't have stomach issues and those are areas of the body that have both sympathetic and parasympathetic balance so increasing both of them in some ways would balance that out. They may have some troubles there, but not the same. And so any system that had both parasympathetic and sympathetic innervation was not affected, not clinically, did not show science clinically. But the one-way systems did. And the, the lens of the eye is one of those one-way systems. It's parasympathetic only. Um, the other one-way systems that I found are most important are the... Uh, the, to the pancreas. The pancreas is simply sympathetic control. It, it, it goes faster. It has more sympathetic stimulation or, more, or less sympathetic stimulation to speed up or slow down the production of insulin, but there's no parasympathetic uh, nerve on the opposite side of that slowing that down. And peripheral, peripheral blood pressure. Um, the peripheral system of, of uh, sympathetic stimulation to the blood vessels, uh, the peripheral vascular uh, system. So in that, what we found out was pretty easy on the, uh, as far as the pancreas was concerned, because overproduction of the pancreas, over, overstimulation of a one-way system increased the output of the pancreas to the point where they were hypoglycemic. They all had low blood sugar. And that was backed up by the fact I asked the teachers that were at this school, you have to sit there for four hours. What do you do to try to get them out of this? And they'll say, we give them a snack. And 
most people would think you don't give kids that are ADD a snack. <laughs> like, you, kids that are going 100 miles an hour, you don't want to sugar them up. But these these teachers had found that giving them the sugariest snack they could give them, all they wanted, would calm them right down. And so that that seemed to fly in the face of some other thoughts. But um, the other was the peripheral uh, blood pressure, the increase in sympathetic stimulation, how it affects the peripheral blood pressure. It should make the blood pressure increase, but it does not. And that took some that took some tracking down. Um, and what it has to do with is sympathetic um, um, system works far and fast enough until it gets to a point where it tires. And when that sympathetic system tires, then it, then the opposite happens. And there was a study that was done in in Germany, and they looked at 75 or 7,700 uh, people that were ADD or uh, ADHD adults and children, and they found the they found all uh, oh, is in the 90% um, low blood pressure. They had low blood pressure rather than high blood pressure. You'd expect a kid. Yeah. Uh, you'd expect that patient to have high blood pressure. They're nearsighted. They have low blood sugar and low blood okay. pressure. And that's weird because you're basically describing like a, uh, a uh, sympathetic fatigue, which does make sense because you can only fight or flight for so long. You eventually have to stop running or you have eventually have to have your stop, heart stop beating out of your chest. You can't do this for forever. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me, um, as we've been talking about this weekend, the, um, the differences in these. I remember talking to um, somebody it's kind of a weird story, but I talked to somebody who was at the shootings in Las Vegas um, and witnessed the whole thing. And he said his takeaway was he realized there were three kinds of people. Um, he said there were the people who were running around like chickens with their heads cut off, just running, but not going anywhere. He said, then there were the people who were during the headlights who just sat there, bullets flying around them. And they're just sitting there. Eyes like saucers look like during the headlights, which um, from polyvagal theory, would say that that's a reptilian response. It's a parasympathetic dominant response okay. because reptil reptiles will do that. If you scare a reptile, they won't run away from you necessarily. They freeze and they can't move because their parasympathetic overwhelms them and paralyzes them. And so people should not have this response, but sometimes they do. And then he said the third class were the people like him who became hyper-focused. He said all of a sudden everything was happening in slow motion. I was thinking so rapidly that I was just going through thoughts. And so then he said, okay, so he's like, so I got to get these people, like he noticed that his wife and her friend were deer in the headlights. So he said, come with me, had to break them out of it. Come with me, grab them, pull them to someplace. He's cognitively thinking, okay, he realized it's not fireworks, it's bullets. Um, when the shooting stops, I'm going to have to, they're going to have to reload. That'll give me time. So he's getting this cognitive awareness sure. that wasn't there before. And so not that I know anything about that. I just think that the whole, that's a perfect example of these three different responses that are all neurologically based. And that people had fallen into these different ones. Or you can see something similar with, uh, there's YouTube videos where they um, put somebody on an elevator and they scare people on an elevator. And you'll have the people that as soon as the elevator door is open, they take off running down the hall. They're gone. Then there's the people who actually want to, like, whatever it is, they want to attack it and fight it. Then there's the other people who just freeze in the corner and they're dead meat. Which, the frozen in the corner dead meat is probably the worst of the three responses. That fight or flight is actually appropriate in that situation. 
but you can't run forever and you can't fight forever. <laughs> and but it's appropriate. But the freezing and being in the corner, the the parasympathetic dominant response in that situation is backwards of what it should That's be. The worst one. And so it's it's very interesting how these things play out. And so when you've got this dysfunction, these kids are getting a neurological response which is not appropriate for their body to respond the way sure. it should. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and what I've done, um, what I've done since then to follow up with that is is I I'll have I did a number of them uh, bring me their their eye exams, and so they'd bring me their eye exams, and a lot of them had eye exams, you know, for even a year, two or three before I'd ever seen them, and so we had a history of what their nearsighted vision was doing, and nearsighted vision never decreases; it always increases, and and it wasn't until they saw the chiropr- we started chiropractic care did it change that, and and those are. Those are findings that the eye doctor measures. Um, we we don't participate in that measurement at all. So it's uh, it really showed that at the time that you take care of that patient, if you take that pressure off that spot, you affect their vision and you affect the sphere reading. That's what's really on there, and it changes the sphere reading to a less nearsighted reading. That's what it does. And and uh, after that, after that was last year that I I talked about that. Since then, I got about another dozen people that have that have brought me their eye exams. Some of them bring me ten years of eye exam, um, and and they're all interested in why why that does that, you know. So so, but I would keep a lookout for nearsighted people, and and, and also for people who have low blood sugar and low blood pressure. You know, you, you find that issue on them, you might find all three of those things together on many people. Yeah, that's very interesting. As I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, you know, actually, I'm nearsighted, and I think my blood pressure is kind of low. And... <laughs> you get you a candy bar. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of funny. Um, well, then, and so then uh, today you were talking about something that's rather interesting, too, and that has to do with neurology um, with the spinal cord and, um, and how one side can ramp up the other. So let's talk about that a little bit. You can kind of go over what, what you're talking about and the DRG and how that, how that stimulates the other side and then how that will affect a scope reading. Um, when we do scope readings, sure, sure. The the um, the, the dorsal root ganglion uh, produces chemistry, um, and that it, it makes our system work, especially the pain system in our in our nervous system. And and when we come into contact with chronic uh, injury or chronic um, at what I'll call aberrant signals, it, it produces more of that chemistry. And that, that chemistry is uh, CGRP and substance P, calcitonin gene-related peptide and substance P. And those, that chemistry, when it's, when it's emitted into the spinal cord uh, on, a, on a more than regular basis, it causes what's called wind-up. Um, the connection, the second-order neuron that connects, crosses the cord and goes to the brain, instead of there being a certain number of them that that send that signal, that number increases dramatically, uh, sometimes tenfold, sometimes many more than that. And so the pain will increase to that particular, uh, for that particular injury, even though the injury is not getting worse. <clears throat> we demonstrated this. Dr. Josh Lawler demonstrated this at our, our seminar here just a little while back. He brought a, a big pack of clothespins, and it, all the students put the clothespins on their finger. And it starts out, everybody, no, nobody's laying on the floor 
screaming in agony because they got a clothespin on their finger. But after a little while, you'd start to see some people take them off. And then some more later and more later, and it didn't take long before most people had them off. Well, the spring on the clothespin didn't get any stronger. It wasn't that it was producing more pressure, but it feels like more pressure because that of that windup that starts to take place fairly quick. And so so that that windup that takes place in the cord also um, that is demonstrated on the opposite side of the DRG. And the opposite side of the DRG is the afferent fiber going into it. That chemistry also goes antidromic down down the dendrite to where the where the is in the surface of the skin. It would actually go to, to any of the dendrites where they come from. But the ones that concern us as chiropractors are the ones that are in the skin because that's where we do our examination. And the substance P causes the, the, the vein side of the capillary bed to leak. And CGRP causes the arterial side of the capillary bed to swell. And so we find that edema at right at the local level of where we've had a, a, a long-term trouble. It's, it, it's called neuro, uh, neurogenic edema, Basbaum and Jessel, and uh, had written about it in 1999. And, and uh, it's, there's many, many, many papers on it. It's just accepted science. And they've done so many experiments with how it works in that. Um, it also, if that, if that continues for a long enough time, will actually increase the, uh, cause a windup on the opposite side of the spinal cord if there's enough of that chemistry there. And so we see clinically, a patient will come in with a, a, perhaps a pain that's been on one side for, for quite some time. And then now they finally show up in our office because now it's on both sides or, or both sides are hurt now where it didn't before. And that many times that will be due not to a mechanical issue that's changed at that spinal level, but the windup neurologically of both sides of the spinal cord. I've never done the experiment, but if you put a clothespin on your index finger, your right finger, will your left index finger start to hurt? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think you may leave it there long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Probably couldn't tolerate it long to find out. Because, yeah, it might actually take quite a while to do it. But I would think if you could tolerate it and left it there, that eventually it probably would start to give you some lesser degree of pain in the index on the other side. There are clinically, there are many times where people come in and they've been had a numb hand for a long time, and then now it's on, on the other side. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think there's so many times where we're seeing a, where that symptom crosses to the other side, where really mechanically there's nothing we need to fix there. Now, sometimes that'll make a liar out of us, and we we're correcting one side, and it all goes away and stays away. And if the other side would would not change or diminish it some with, with the line of correction we're doing. And it might tell us that there's, there's more to it than that. It might be a mechanical issue on that side. So you never want to rule that out. But this is one mechanism that will, will correct the, the one side, the original side, and both sides fade. And that, that happens quite often. Yeah, the really interesting thing you did is, that, is when you showed us that using a regular scope, you can find the reading. So there's a known reading at a known level. And then used your one-prong unicorn scope. And you can see that same reading. When you know it's on the right, you can scope on the right side of the spine and you can pick up the heat signature. But then with one probe on the left side, you can pick it up as well to a lesser degree. But you pick it up, which, as we were talking about, means that in many cases that would mute your, your reading. 
So then you might incorrectly, if you were to see that muted reading, think, oh, that's just a little baby one. That's not really a problem. When the reality is it's a really bad one that's now on both sides. Both sides. It's and just... so your interpretation is exactly wrong <laughs> in that situation. Yes. And, and just just to be aware of it is what's really important. As long as we're aware of what what is there and, and we can look for that. Um, because because you don't have to necessarily... I used to, I, I, had the, I had the instrument, the unicorn one, that I use a single probe, the heat instrument, but... But you can do the same thing with uh, with a single probe uh, galvanic. You know, you can do that with uh, with uh, ECS. Uh, you can uh, a conductance scanner. So that will also give you the same the same issue. That because the the increase in in swelling or edema in that area is also almost identical. The increase in conductivity uh, follows the same pattern. You would find uh, a large reading on that right side of that one. You'd also catch an increase, somewhat an increase of reading on the left side also. So so you can do that same thing with a single probe uh, conductance scanner also. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really cool as we're starting to figure some of the stuff out. Just it helps to refine our interpretation because we know what the data is, but we don't always know that we're interpreting the data correctly. We make the best assumptions we can, but as we learn more, we kind of go, you know, maybe we should think about this either way different or just a little different, but how we think about it does change ultimately what we do. And it's good to know, especially when in this case, we know why. Yeah. Knowing why really helps you know that I'm not just making this up. I know why. It has a reason. Yeah. And, and, there, and there are many things we wonder about that we don't have a reason for yet. And that's just because research science hasn't caught up with chiropractic yet. <laughs> yeah. Clinically, we're this that far ahead of them. D.G. Palmer knew all. D.G. Palmer wrote about these things in his 1910 book, and 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 so we're not rediscovering them, but but the uh, the research, the medical research, is catching up with things that he knew about clear back then. Yeah, we can see, we can see what works, recognize a pattern. Uh, I was talking to somebody else about that today. That really, we were talking about the difference between people with a lot of years of experience and people with very few. And I said, really what it comes down to is pattern recognition. Well, when you're new out of school, how can you recognize a pattern you've never seen? Okay. So the further down the road you go, the more you've seen certain things enough to actually recognize that there's a pattern there. And that really as young, as students, as young practitioners, the best thing people can get from the older people and the people who have done it longer is help with recognizing patterns that they may not have seen yet. And so this is one of those patterns that it, can potentially happen that you wouldn't even look for. But the, but the, but the really great thing about chiropractic is that, that those ones that we recognize and we see over and over again um, aren't all that we see. You can be assured that every day that you're in practice, somebody's going to walk through that's going to make you scratch your head and say, okay, I got to figure this one out now. Yeah. And, and as long as you keep working and getting those all figured out, you, you, I, I don't think we'll ever run out of, of patients that come in that are a challenge yeah I think as you get better the harder patients come in and those harder patients give you failure which keeps you humble and I think at any point if somebody's not humble then it means they're not really yeah. learning <laughs> they're not because if you're learning and you're getting better you're going to keep getting smacked down by these harder and harder things that come in I, I, I think no matter how long you've been in practice you need to start the day uh, with the opinion that you're a real hack and you've got to do better today than you did <laughs> yeah. yesterday. So, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, yeah. There's a lot of times where our, I don't I don't know if it's true. Our mediocre success 
in the hindsight is like, yeah, it wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't as good as maybe I thought at the moment. But I guess at the same time, our, our some of our failures are like, actually, it wasn't as bad as I thought either. So it's somewhere in the middle. Yes, that's right. You've uh, you've been teaching students for a long time. What do, what do you think is one of the biggest obstacles that people face when they're trying to learn this work? Uh, especially if they're coming from some other school of thought or even just coming straight out of school and you know all that stuff's designed to pass boards and get your license and all that stuff. But when you really truly want to be able to help people, um, and we get a lot of students that come up here, um, the, the extravaganza is huge, the GMI seminars, we get a lot of students who are interested and yet we always have to deal with their frustrations when they go, well, I went for a weekend. <laughs> Why isn't it mastered? And what do you think is one of the biggest obstacles that really keeps people, that kind of holds people back from being able to, to I think, learn this? I think you have to do it with enthusiasm and pick a target. Pick a target of what you want to be. And, and I don't think there's a greater target than Clarence Gonstead. Now, people say, oh, that's cult or you, you're, you're idolizing somebody that's gone now. No, I, I don't think there'd be any argument about anybody in the profession that knows what's going on that would know that Clarence Gonstead saw more patients and got more patients better than anybody before or since. And it doesn't mean that we can all be Clarence Gonstead, but, but, but to take his system and to try to apply it the best we can helps so many people. And I, th I think that's, I think if I, you know, as a, if you're a student right now, you have to think in those terms. Pick out what you think is the best that you can be and, 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 and just jump in. Make sure that you're only a C student. <laughs> you, <don't, laughs> you want to be an A student in the chiropractic end of it. Just get through school. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what was it? Oh, I forget who it was. The C's for chiropractic. The C's for chiropractic. So you want to be a chiropractor, yeah. get C's. We had, a, we had a doctor say that today. He <laughs> said he was getting straight A's, and then he, then he got, in, uh, get, uh, got in with a couple of guys said, People learning Gonset, and he became a C student, and his parents were worried about him. He said, no, I'm really learning chiropractic now. Yeah, <laughs> no. there's, there's such a process, and I think it's such a unique um, profession anyway, because what we do is extremely mental, but it's also extremely physical. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's like learning a sport. Um, I remember um, when I played football in college that the funny thing to me is everybody knew that you go to practice, you do lots of running, you lift weights. They knew the physical side of it. They didn't know how many hours we spent in class learning defenses. And in this situation, you do this. And in this situation, so you learn your responsibility. You, and I remember sitting there thinking, this is the hardest class I have in school. Is <laughs> my, my, my football classes are way more complex because they're a lot more abstract. I go to math, and if the numbers add up, they add up. So it's, it's very s solid. But here it's like, well, do this. Well, what if they do that? Well, then don't do that. Do this instead. And you're like, well, what's the rule? There's no rule. But don't mess it up. And it's like, it, was, it was like, you know, there's, there's that two-sided nature of it. So when I quit playing football, I actually made the decision that I need to do something less physical because my body's broken. I need to do something more mental. So I thought chiropractic was great because it's mental. I can really do a lot of thinking. Lo and behold, it's also physical. It's physical. And if you don't learn how to do these skills and do these things, it's like you can know everything in the world and you're not going to help anybody. But you can be the greatest adjuster. And if you don't know how to apply it, you're not going to help anybody. Yeah, they say it's, so, it's, a, it's a science, it's an art, and it's, yeah. it's a philosophy. And it really is all those three things that combine. You, yeah. have, to, you have to be able to put all, put all those together. And I think, I think that just being in practice, this is the experience of every day. You, you look back and all of a sudden you realize, you know, this philosophy stuff is more important than I used to think it was. That that was huge to me. When I started um, practicing, I didn't think philosophy was that big a deal. And I thought, you know, I can't work another day until I understand why I'm here. 
that you actually read and I went to LACC, so that might explain oh. some of that. <laughs> but there really was a point where I was like, I can't explain to patients why they should be here if I don't know why I'm here or why they so, should be here. I know yourself. And so then all of a sudden it becomes very important. And I remember sitting down thinking, I have to write this out. I have to get this locked down because I if a patient says, Well, should I come back? How do you answer that if you don't know why you're there? And so I was like, it just doesn't work. I have to know why I'm here. And so that was really a big thought process growth thing that I had to do. And I didn't know how important it was until I was I faced it there's head a, on. There's a philosophy, yes. You have to have pieces of all of that. Yes. And 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 some some parts might you might be a superstar at and others not as good, but you can always work on improving any of any of it. That's that's for sure. So Yeah, and it does seem like too, like at these events, we're talking a lot of science, but as the science leads us in a direction the philosophy goes with it. it does. And it's really kind of funny how you don't have to, you don't have to be philosophical or create philosophy. It just kind of guides you there. Yeah. It just it reveals itself, I guess. I think when we see the science and it, and it, it shows why, why that person has that issue or that pain or that, that, that symptom that they have. And, and we understand neurologically why that's going to change or how we're going to change that. I think then the, it, it it just fits together. It's it's like there's a point it reaches where it's like okay now, now this this makes sense. You know that part part of it might have been missing before in our knowledge, but you know what we don't know now it'll it'll all fit in. That's I'm 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 that sure about chiropractic. Chiropractic it will never ever stop. It is a fundamental truth. What we do is a truth. It works, and that's all that matters. I don't care if we can't explain one word of it. It works. Mm-hmm. And there's millions upon millions of people have have discovered that, and they continue to seek chiropractic care because it, it, we are not the alternative. I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. I, I so many times they all oh, alternative care. They I, I never let anybody get away with that. If a, if a patient would say, you know, even if they say, you know, I I really done better under alternative care. I said we are not the alternative. You if you have a problem for 25 years and you've been to 15 different doctors and you walk into a Gonset chiropractor and, and six weeks later, you don't have your trouble anymore. We weren't the alternative. Wherever <laughs> you should have been the whole time. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I remember I would have patients. Um, this one always gave me trouble. Patients would come in and they'd say something like, Oh, I believe in chiropractic. And then they would ask me, do you believe in chiropractic? And I, I kind of, at first kind of caught me off guard and I thought about it. And I said, no. And they said, you don't. And I said, no, belief exists where knowledge is absent. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't believe in chiropractic because I know it. You can't take away what I've seen. So I tell them, I'm like, so in your case, you saw that you had these problems. You saw yourself get adjusted. You saw yourself get better. And they're like, yeah. I said, are you convinced? Yes. Well, I've seen that a thousand times. <laughs> I've seen that 2,000 times, 5,000 times. I've seen that so many times that I know that it's not just a fluke. With you, you might convince yourself it's a fluke. I'm not convinced it's a fluke because I've seen it so many times so many times. and you can't ever take away what I've seen. So oh. I don't have to believe in anything because belief only exists when knowledge is absent. You don't need faith. Yeah, it's, there's it's, no faith. Faith got nothing to do with it. No, no. In fact, my faith, if there's any faith, it went from, as a, as a first year practitioner, oh, I hope this works. Yeah. That's a different faith. <laughs> That's, That's a different, different faith. faith. Yeah. And, and you know the weak link in the chain is you. Yeah. So I would be like, I hope this works. Then it becomes... Um, I hope I can pull this off. I hope I can perform this. I hope I can, I know what they need. I hope I can give them the adjustment they need. 
Uh, I hope I can coordinate everything because you know you still got that coordination of things. I got to get my stabilization hand coordinated with my adjusting hand, coordinated with all these other things. And so it's I hope I can perform. Yeah. And then it becomes um, I think I hope um, I hope I'm applying this correctly because at, at a point as you get better and better at something, that's when you get sloppy. Yeah. So you start cutting yeah. corners, and you have to then have massive focus of. Stay focused and don't cut that corner because you get focus fatigue. So by this point, if you're seeing enough patients and you're seeing, I don't know how many, 40, 50, 60, 100 a day, you have to be focused on every one of them and you start to get focus fatigue. So the last 20 might not be as good as the first 80 if you get that focus fatigue. So you, you start learning how to manage this. The, 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 the toughest, the toughest is, is, uh, you know what you have to do. You know you have to spend whatever time it takes to figure out that patient's problem. But you've got 12 chairs in your waiting room and there's 11 people out there. You know, there's a pressure that's behind you saying, you better hurry up. And, and you need to not succumb to that. That's a yeah. very difficult thing in practice. I like the joke you made today when you said, uh, I'll just be another hour behind. Another hour behind. It's like, it's like my, my wife, she, says, she didn't really care for me going to these two. Sometimes she says, you come back and you're slower. Because <laughs> I'm thinking more. I'm thinking more. I learned something. Yeah, yeah that's right. So no, faith, faith has nothing to do with it. Babies don't believe in it, and dogs don't believe in it. It works on them. That's that's right. Yeah, so and actually, I think as a young practitioner, that actually helped me a lot to realize that when one of my early patients was a young child, and to see them get better. And then I had a friend who had a dog, and I was like, "All right, I'll help you out." And then saw this dog get better, and, and immediately that was my thought: is they don't believe in anything. The dog didn't have faith. They don't have enough. faith in me. They don't know that I know what I'm doing, <laughs> and I really don't at this point. So it was like they don't have to know, and it works just fine. So I don't really need your faith or belief either. Chiropractic is a truth. That's what it is. That's why they could never get. That's why they couldn't get rid of it. They've tried yeah. for a hundred years to to make us go away, and we're not. We're more popular than ever, and 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 the the thing that we just need to make sure that we do as a profession is keep our nose to the grindstone to do the correct thing. Don't get off into don't get off into things that just aren't chiropractic. Find that spot and fix that spot, and and you. You 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 you'd have to do nothing else. You can you can lock your door, and people will find a way to get to you. You know you can turn off the lights and and lock the door, and you'll still see fifty people a day because they'll they'll figure a way to get to you. I have a friend who told me one time. He said, if you started setting up a table in an alley, the only question anybody would ask is which alley. Which alley? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, okay, I guess there's that. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Well, as as far as uh all this stuff that we do, we, we have a lot of students that listen to this, but we also have a lot of people who are in their first couple of years of practice. And they pro- and some of them practice in places where they don't have anybody nearby. Uh, we have people in Europe don't have anybody nearby. Um, if you had advice for somebody who was just getting started and kind of felt like, you know, when you get in practice, it, it's like a rapid learning curve and then you kind of plateau. And sometimes it's kind of like with exercise. You feel like you've plateaued and how do you bust through a plateau? Do you have any advice for how to get through one of those plateaus and try to Get yourself to the next level. I think I I think one thing that's always helped me is is right from the not too long after I was out of school we, we taught um, we taught at Life West when I was in my first few years there we went up and taught Godset technique and and then and after that when I came back to Iowa I taught seminars ever since and teaching it makes you learn it 
in a way. I agree. When you teach and it makes you learn it. So, so even if you're not going to teach, uh, study something as if you were going to go present it, and you'll you'll learn that you'll learn that topic, and it's you know it it'll all it'll apply to chiropractic if it has to do with neurology and has to do with mechanics of the spine. You can't go wrong. I think he said to, uh, every moment you have, study the human spine and the nervous system. Yeah. And, and you just keep you just keep doing that. You know, I I I can tell you, I, I can have to confess that my my first years I thought, oh, you don't need to know all that stuff. You just if you can get good enough putting your finger where the trouble is, knowing where it's at and adjusting that, what difference does all that other stuff make? And it was it was actually up here at the clinic, Lindbergh told me he said, you know, Doctor Gant said wore out a great uh, guidance every year. Wow. He had to get a new guidance every year because it wore it it was worn out. And I remember going home that day from that seminar thinking, I could sell my guidance as new. <laughs> you know, if I went ahead in school. <laughs> I could sell that as as barely used, you know. Yeah. We used it to get through school and, and and he was looking at it every day at something and understanding more about the what the human condition was and how to correct these these things that people needed i don't think anybody was better at it but we're going to keep trying so that's funny that you say the name of lynn burr he, he i learned a lot from him and you're the only other person i've heard say that uh, lynn, was, so, lynn was a great guy yeah, he, yes he, he I, I learned a lot from him about about guns and he was helpful because he was taller than me oh so i learned how to adjust from somebody taller because short people weren't helping me any. Oh. <laughs> so it was helpful anyway yeah. um well i did the same thing when i was at lacc i set up kind of a club situation where i could teach and I didn't know if anybody would show up, and I didn't care. I just thought, I'll, if, the, if nobody shows up, I'll come and just go through the motions with nobody here because the act of teaching is going to give me a chance. Slowly by slowly, the group grew and became more and more people. And then I got the benefit of the pressure because I got to be at least one or two steps ahead of these people. <laughs> so I, that's when I started becoming a lesser student because instead of doing my homework, I'm like reading through chapters going – I got to understand this better than anybody else does so I can explain it to them. And I felt the responsibility of not explaining it wrong. So sure. it became this environment where I got to memorize this. I got to memorize this. And that pressure pushed me to do it. And then because I had it, I had it. And sure. it was probably one of the most viable experiences being able to teach like that. It, it absolutely does make a difference. Yeah, I think if somebody's in an area where they want to learn more and there's people around them who are interested in learning something, we'll just offer to teach them. Sure. And I mean, with our groups, we're, we'll come alongside anybody and help them out if they, if they want to help. I mean, sure. I mean, there's no shortage of that. Yeah. We've all had to get on a plane or, or, or travel, you know, to seminars and, and it's a, it's a pain. You know, I, every time we've got one scheduled and we're going to go somewhere, I always tell my wife, you know, it's those last few days before it's time to go to the seminar. And even though I look forward to going, it's still, I think of a, there's a hundred things I need to do at home and at my office, and and she she never gripes at me. She just you know she knows I got a list of things that I should be doing at home this weekend instead of <laughs> instead of doing this. But that's but that's that's how it works out, and that's because she's a G man too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. I I always look forward to traveling to seminars, any of that kind of stuff. But then it's always right at that moment when I have to actually leave, and I'm like, I don't want to go. Yeah. And, but I go anyway, and then once I get going, I'm like, yeah, I did want to go. But there's always that moment of, I don't want to go. <laughs> it's easier just to stay home, but but it happens. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, it's been uh, – it's definitely a, a good opportunity where we get to teach a lot of people. And the whole thing has been growing, which is awesome that more and more people are getting interested. And so 
we definitely want everybody to feel like sure. if they want to learn, somebody will teach them sure. no matter where they are. So, that so, part's so somebody's listening to this. Yeah. Wherever you a, are, get to a seminar call, email, do something. Just we'll give you contact. Denny's phone number. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Middle of the night. Don't matter to me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great conversation. There's a lot of good things in there. There's a lot of meat that at least will get people thinking about things. And sometimes that's the most fun, like with this seminar is it doesn't have to be complete, but we just get thinking about a different line and it really, you can kind of run with it and everybody finds out something new about it. So that part's, that's well, kind of how we all grow together. Well, it did my pleasure. I, I like, I enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you so much. Once again, I want to thank Dr. O'Hara for joining me today. I also want to thank Dr. Michael O'Hara for hanging out to keep the clinic open and allowing us to complete our interview. If you're in chiropractic as either a student or a doctor, I want to encourage you to become a member of the GCSS. For students, it's only $15 per year, and you'll gain full access to all of our newsletters as well as all of our research archives. If you're in your first couple years of practice, the membership rate is discounted, but you still gain access to all the valuable resources. Additionally, you'll be added to the membership directory, which is often used for referrals. There's high demand for Gonstead doctors, and the home office receives numerous calls from patients who are looking. They can't refer to you if they don't know you're there. So please join the GCSS and help us to spread Gonstead chiropractic around the world. I hope you found today's interview to be helpful. And as always, I hope you have the very best week possible. And I'll see you again next time.